guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have an excellent episode for you guys today. Sam Smith, one of the ed- one of the uh, writers for Road and Track, right. is here. Uh, just a seasoned journalist, seasoned adventurer. I really look up to him, and I look up to his writing, and I like what he does, and I'm really excited to have him on the podcast to tell us some stories. Yeah, and as you've alluded to, he is just such a good storyteller. He he is a he's one of the guys I look up to for sure. I, I really like his writing and and everything. Obviously, he's had all these great opportunities, and he's got the stuff that we talk about. He's got a million more stories, so maybe we'll have to have him on again. Some other <laughs> a time million to, more times to tell us. Yeah, well, that that's <laughs> overcrest. Jake and Chris with Sam Smith forever. There you go. I like yeah, that. Be fantastic. All right. So before we get into that, what have we got? Yeah, let's talk about our sponsor, WeatherTech. Now, Chris, we have so much of this terrible weather coming up into the next season of winter. And so what can you do to protect your car? Well, you can head over to WeatherTech and check out their awesome floor liners and also cargo trunk liners. They feature a textured finish to prevent any shifting and the cargo trunk liners are custom fit, laser measured and designed to keep messes, dirts and spills away from your car's interior. If you live in a cold part of the country, the good news is that they don't crack, they don't break or warp even in extreme temperatures. They're also made right here in the USA and are installed easily to protect your investment from everyday wear and tear. They also have the cargo tech containment system that organizes trunk areas, making it the perfect dish to your cargo trunk liner itself. So head over to weathertech.com and check out all of their products. We also have a giveaway for the month of November. You can enter to win two $50 WeatherTech gift cards at weathertech.com slash overcrest. All right, let's get right into our interview with Sam Smith. I'm excited for this. There's lots of great stories here. Um, Jake was here for the interview, but he was so enamored with Sam's stories that he didn't say a whole I lot. I piped it down until the, the end of the episode. Um, it's pretty good. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get right to it. Sam Smith. Hey, Mr. Sam Smith. How's it going, man? Hey, Chris. Not too bad. How about you? Very good. It's uh, it's my pleasure to have you on the podcast. I, I'll fanboy a little bit and say that um, your writing and uh, the two journalists that I really love are you and, and Zach Bowman. I really enjoy reading both of your work and uh, I aspire. And a lot of the way that I write is is to put people in the passenger seat with me. And you do that better than anybody, I think. <laughs> I'm blushing, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. And and to be mentioned in the same company as Zach is, is, is heady stuff. He's a He's a great dude and a good writer. For sure. Um, so I want to, before we get into some of the stuff that you've done, I want to kind of talk about where you've been to get where you are. Um, and I want to know the first car that sparked interest for you. When you were young and there was a car that really put that glint in your eye, what was it? Oh, Jesus. God, that, that's, <laughs> that, 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 that's a massive list, right? I mean, because you, like, you know, everybody, we get letters all the time from people and emails and people find me at car shows and I was like, I've been paying attention to cars since I was two years old. It's always been my dream to be around this stuff. It's like anybody who's into this sort of thing, you you know, you find it early, right? So the question isn't, isn't, isn't what it was, but how far back you can remember. And I, I don't know, you know, first off, my memory is terrible, but second, (laughs) I grew up around, we write it down because we can't remember anything. (laughs) I grew, I grew up around, um, old British sports cars. I came home from the hospital in a, a BMW Bavaria. My parents had, you know, BMW 2002s and old five series and three series and stuff. And, and that, and just a, man, a number of things. The list is endless. It's, 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 it's just, I could bore you for the next hour with it, but I get to say a lot of random stuff. How about you? 
Oh God. Um, for me, the, the first car that really did anything for me probably was the, the Volkswagen rabbit that my grandpa bought. Um, and he bought this old <laughs> rabbit diesel and he was kind of like a, a, a Y2K kind of guy. And he was always interested in stuff that didn't need any electricity or anything like that. So we bought this baby blue Volkswagen rabbit and he thought, <laughs> he thought I would hate it. Like, he's like, there's no way Chris is going to like this thing. But I ended up really, I really fell in love with that car. And that was the kind of the car that started all the Volkswagen stuff for me. I ended up owning tons of Volkswagen rabbits and stuff like that. But it was that car that kind of started, you know, I worked on, that was the first car I ever really worked on and I worked on it with him and stuff like that. And that's what kind of started the car thing for me. So, I mean, that, right that, that was the impetus for it. Not, a, I mean, not an amazing car. It's not like, you know, I'm not the guy that had the bikini chick with the Countach on the wall in the bedroom or anything like that. It was, <laughs> it was more learning the toil and reward of changing axles in the snow and then getting to yeah. drive the car and having it work afterward was kind of where it came from for me. Um, right on, man. So what was the, what was the first article that you wrote and got paid to do? Oh man, God, I started off in, so I went to, went to college in St. Louis, which is a a long and weird story of how I ended up there that I won't bore you with. But I started going to, um, small music clubs and things around town and ended up basically begging my way into freelancing for one of the local papers there. There was a a small culture paper called the, the Riverfront Times. It was part of the the New Times Syndicate, which at the time owned, um, I think they owned the Seattle Stranger and a handful of other fairly famous city papers. But I started doing music reviews for them. And I think I got paid 150 bucks to write, oh God, four or 500 words of, uh, four or 500 words on a band that showed up downtown at this club we went to all the time. Just that actually sounds like a pretty good wage. That's not bad for that type of work. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the editor took pity on me when she found out it was my... My first ever check. I remember hanging it on the wall. I didn't cash it until the, the last day of the deadline. You know, you have like a certain amount of time on a check to cash it before it goes through. I basically pinned it to my wall and stared at it every morning as I left to go to college just because it was like the, the notion that somebody could pay me to do something I, I loved was just, it, it seemed impossible. But that was it. So when did you start doing car writing and stuff like that? What did that kind of kick off for you? Oh, Jesus. So I was in St. Louis, and at the time, um, uh, I was daily driving uh, B&W 2002, which I about a year later sold to buy uh, my first E30 M3 back when they were when they were cheap. And a, a good 2002 was actually worth more than a good E30 M3. So I was, I was living in a dorm and driving this kind of half-shiny, half-ratty 2002 every day and got sucked into... There's a racetrack across the river from downtown St. Louis. And it was an old IndyCar track that they had built a, a road course in the middle of. And I found out that the found out that the BMW Car Club was doing track days. And I went out just to watch one day and ended up talking to somebody and talking to somebody else and talking to somebody else. And kind of ended up going out for drinks occasionally with some of the guys in the local chapter of the club because they were all just people who worked on their own stuff and took it to a track. And then, you know, the drove it every day and that was kind of where my head was leaning because it seemed really cool and ended up doing just basically freelancing for the local club newsletter for essentially free and then that turned into um like my stuff there had caught the eye of the guy who ran the national club magazine by the name of satch carlson what would you say your style writing was back then when you were writing that stuff (laughs) is it is it kind of like you are now or 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 what kind of how have things changed for you over the years from how, how you wrote then to how you write now well, it's funny, right? I mean, every writer evolves. And, you know, the old line is that if you're not thinking about what you're doing and it doesn't change as you do it, then you're not thinking enough. Um, so it's 
probably just a more spastic, uh, less focused version of what I do now, which if you ask my wife, it's terrifying because you know she insists that the stuff that she's an editor and she insists that the stuff I do now is both spastic and unfocused, but uh, mostly like me, just younger and dumber and not that smart now, but you know. <laughs> so over all these years, what is your favorite story to recount for others? If I had to be in a bar and you were going to tell me a story, but you wanted me to buy you a beer first. What story do you have that's worth me buying you a beer? Oh man, God, that's a, that's a laundry list. You know, the job is, one of the perks of the job is that we end up doing stuff that end up doing kind of once in a lifetime stuff on a pretty regular basis. And I, you know, stuff where you're sitting there and you look around the room and you have no idea how you got there from, you know, I drove an ex Alonzo, ex Fernando Alonso McLaren F1 car. I went to Japan and, and found the, the Dodge bound guys, the guys who invented Dodge van um, club racing and modifying uh, probably that one, but God, there's a, there's a laundry list. I mean, I, I got to spend five days in rural Japan poking around with people who basically redefined car culture in a large portion, a large part of Japan. What do you think it is about turning, Japanese culture that does that? Because I don't seems like, know. It seems like they do know. all kinds of different things, whether it's the Bozuku or the RWB or the Dajiban stuff. Why is it such this microcosm of unique ideas when everybody here in America is copying what everybody else does? They have these unique ideas that just seem to spring out of nowhere. Well, you know, it's funny. I asked on the, on the trip to go chase the Dajiban guys. I ended up hanging out with um, a friend of mine named Dino Carbonari. He used to write for Auto Week, but he's been with speedrunners for a long, long time. And I asked him that same question. He's Italian. He grew up in Japan. He married a Japanese woman as as kids who go to Japanese schools. And, I, and what he said was that the country is so, so much of the way the country works and society works there is so focused on conformity, which sounds cliche, but is is ultimately true. I mean, it's, it's a, a stereotype, but it's also part of how the country works. And he said that because of that, what they do on the weekends is find ways to become and feel like anything other than a salary man. And that can be dropping a Dodge van on Watanabe's and putting straight pipes on it. That could be, you know, completely re-engineering a Ferrari F40, despite the fact that it makes the thing worth half as much as, <laughs> as it was when they started. I mean, all they're concerned with is being original in a place that very much encourages them to not, which means you end up with, Again, you know, Decatora trucks and Bozozuku and every ounce of drift culture. I mean, all of it. It's it's amazing because it's all rooted in guys just wanting to do something unique. So speaking of the Formula One stuff, the, for a regular guy, the power and speed and immediacy of an F1 is unimaginable. What was it like going from driving, you know, any production car that's ever existed <laughs> and then getting into an F1 car that's just inst everything's just happening immediately? How do you, does your brain keep up with it? Well, it, it doesn't, right? And and you very quickly realize, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to drive a lot of professional-grade racing cars, stuff that ran or is currently running in Pro Series. And a lot of it, as a club racer, as a track day guy, you get into and you're like, yeah, I can wrap my head around this with enough time. I could get down to competitive whatever. I could figure out what this thing needs and do it. It's just time and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, building your body up to, to have the resolution required. And an F1 car you hop into and you realize that you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the only way that the guys who operate those things on the limit every day for a living get there is by being some of the best in the world and training since they were five. And it's one of those things where, like, it, it's impossible to understand the scope of it until you get you dip a toe in the water. And you dip a toe in the water and you realize that what you thought is a puddle is an ocean, Right. 
so much of it was so far beyond anything I could, I could process. And, you know, I've been in GTP cars and Group C cars, and I drove a, a Mazda 787 that ran in Le Mans, a Porsche 962, and I've driven Bugattis, and all of this stuff that is insanely fast. And it wasn't so much the speed, it's just the focus. And, you know, they pull, I mean, the cars will pull four and a half Gs under braking, right? You know, <laughs> holding your head up and being able to, to modulate, you know, any control or turn a switch or talk on the radio uh, with four Gs on your body, you know, it's fighter pilot stuff. And that's, you know, that's legitimately some of the best guys and the most talented guys in the world. But also, you know, they've spent their entire lives shaping those talents to, to be better than the next guy. I mean, that, that's, you come away with it mostly with a, just an impression of how, how far down the rabbit hole goes and how little you know, right? It, it's almost Socratic. It, it's pretty cool. It almost becomes your entire life is a whetstone. You're just continually honing <laughs> that skill. You're just yeah. like sharpening that knife for for yep. your entire life just to do that one specific thing. Um, so how do you totally. think you how do you think you save Formula One? Does it need saving? Where do you think things are oh, going? God. You know, the, the Formula One has always been it's always been kind of a robust, right? It eats its own tail. The sport has spent basically ever since Bernie, ever since Bernie Eccleston <laughs> took the TV rights and, and and kind of started you know single tenting the entire sport. It's been so intent on protecting what it has that it's almost gotten away of of it. It's the desires of the people who run it have gotten in the way of proper racing, of proper tech advancement, of making the thing what everybody loved fifty years ago, thirty years ago, twenty years ago, and all the stuff that's great about it. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, all the modern stuff that's great about it, you almost get the feeling that it's been by accident, not on purpose. And, you know, if there's anything that, you know, you talk to, we talk to drivers and chiefs and engineers and, you know, anybody up and down the line, everybody knows it. it's pulling back so that you can see what the superhuman people behind the wheel are doing, right? You know, you can pull four G's in a corner and four G's under braking and, you know, have your eyeballs pop out of your sockets. But ultimately, if the car that you're in and your efforts look boring, nobody's going to care, right. which is part of why, you know, the F1's had a hard time getting off the ground here in large part because the, you know, it doesn't have the momentum of history here like it does in Europe or Asia or anywhere else. And, you know, if they're going to do anything to fix it, it's going to be to pull back and make, make it clear what the drivers are doing, make the cars exciting. And focus on, you know, tracks that have some semblance of risk. You know, the drivers and the fans, all the old school stuff is is old school and people like it because it's neat and it's got history. But I mean, it's also because, you know, you watch somebody going around spa and it takes stones to put a car through Eau Rouge, it's, you know, flat, even now. Right. It takes balls to put an outside pass on somebody in one thirty R at Suzuka. I mean, there are there are bits and pieces of the series that that exist almost in spite of what they've tried to do. And it's nothing to do with safety or, you know, limiting tech progress and everything to do with, you know, it's become an, uh, an aerodynamic battlefield and so much of it is about how much money you spend. You know, maybe the, the 2021 guy, regs are going to help. But. There was a guy, there was a journalist who wrote something along the lines of, well, if people aren't dying anymore, that's why it's not interesting. And while oh, that's, God, yeah. well, that, well, that's wrong. There's a certain right. monicum of truth to the fact that the that the risk that used to exist back in the day was romantic, 
Right. I mean, the fact that the fact I that mean, these guys will go out here and be like, you know what? You know, there's someone here. They're in the driver's meeting. Someone here is going to be dead by the end of the day. And they went and they did it anyway. And I talked to I mean, uh, Brian Redmond. He said he would wake up in the morning just assuming that he was going to die when he went out to the track. And that's I can't imagine that any of the guys that are racing today are thinking about it the same way. And it feels like that romanticism is gone a little bit. And I don't know how we get that back. Well, I mean, it's, it, it, you can't go home again, right? And it's Thomas Wolf. You know, we're not going to have what we had and trying to recreate it is, is a fool there, you know? And, and more important, you know, people shouldn't be dying in the sport. Should there be an element of risk? Yes, there's an element of risk when you get in a, an airliner or when you fly a Piper Cub or when you ride down the street on a bicycle. Does that mean that we should, you know, that every airliner should have spikes on the inside and an engine on fire and half a wing? No. It would be you more know, exciting. <laughs> but, you know, Jackie Stewart once said that, you know, he was he was deeply unpopular for turning the sport around. And yet 30 years later, all of the people who had pointed that finger at him and said that you know, the safety changes he tried to make and he ended up making and he pushed for and all the people behind him pushed for. There were people 30 years later who had disagreed with those safety changes when they were when they were relevant and being made, but later acknowledged that Jackie probably saved their lives, right? You know, it's, right. it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be, we shouldn't make it more dangerous than it needs to be. But by the same token, like there is, you watch the Olympics and you see the guy go over the ski jump and you realize that he's putting something on the line. That man or woman is putting something on the line in pursuit of excellence. Right. And if, if we, uh, you know, by all means, no one should die in racing ever. Like if we can, can save a life or keep somebody from getting injured, that is, that is the most important thing we can do in that, in that realm. Yep. But the other side of that token is, you know, there is, if you don't think about how the sport works and how the people in it work and, and showing what they're capable of and showing how good they are and also showing that they're willing to do something that normal people aren't, you know, there's not a lot separating separating them from the guys who sit at home and, you know, spend 20 hours a day on iRacing. Right. And not to knock either one, but, you know, you sit in Indianapolis and you watch a guy sling a car around that place at 220 miles an hour and you watch people, like, you know, go through the crosswinds between turns three and four and the car gets loose and you think about what it takes to slide a car at 220 miles an hour. You know, you realize that that's not a normal person. Right. Well, anytime you're on the edge of anything, whether it's climbing a mountain or sliding at 220 miles an hour, there's a part of the, of us as human beings. I think that when we see that, we're like, wow, that that is the totally. pinnacle and the, the elite of the human psyche and physical endurance or whatever the case may be. And I think that's why people like to watch that kind of thing. Totally. I mean, it's it all comes down to that. These are extraordinary people doing extraordinary things and extraordinary machines. And that has never not been interesting. The more of that. And it goes back to your question on F1, right? The more of that we hide from the people who ostensibly care about it, the less interested they'll be. All right, before we get a little bit farther, why don't you tell us about PetrolBox? That's right. So PetrolBox, as you guys know, is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. I like to say this is one of these subscription boxes made for car guys by car guys. Each month, they carefully select cool items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear stickers, and sometimes publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. And there's actually two levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month at $19.95, while you can get the Petrobox Premium, which has even more gear, for $39.95 a month. So be sure to check these guys out at mypetrolbox.com. That's M-Y petrol 
box.com and be sure to use the code overcrest at checkout to get six dollars off your first month's order so when you look at we've talked about dajibon and formula one and these are two completely different cultures but what do you think it is about motoring in general that transcends all the different cultures from japan to f1 to nascar and keeps all of us interested in cars <laughs> just motoring in general what is it about that ties man. it all together oh man i mean that's that we could we could that is a bottle of whiskey's worth of question. We could burn through a fifth of something trying to answer it, but if, well, come on over. I mean, We've got a few over on the shelf. <laughs> <over here. laughs> but I mean, if, if you ask me, if it really comes down to one thing, it's all of these, like the best stuff, the humanity's best efforts have always been about showing us who we are and what we're capable of and why we should strive for better heights. Right. And on some level, you know, a car, a motorcycle, an airplane, all the machinery we've built is ways to make our lives easier. It ends up pushing us to answer questions about ourselves. Even if it's just, it, could my life be more interesting if I got in my Camry, got off the couch and drove to a national park, right? You know, it doesn't have to be, am I running a track day? Am I, you know, I, am I taking a Jeep to the Arctic Circle? It, it doesn't have to be even, even that riskier adventurous. At the end of the day, cars, machinery, but especially the automobile, they make us go out and see and do things by definition. And that's like, if you, I'm one of those people who believes that if you're not, if you're not constantly learning and asking questions and feeling stupid, you're not moving forward. Right. I always tell people that, if you're not exploring, you might as well be dead. That's kind of what I tell right. everybody. If you're not yeah. doing that, if you're not doing that, you know, if you're not doing the equivalent of getting off the couch, if you do something besides go to work, come home, stare at a TV and then go to sleep, you know, you're doing something Are moving you really in the direction living, of living a better life. Are right. you living that's, at that that's point. the point. You know, it's, it's, they remind us what it is to be human and they remind us what makes us us. So speaking of the Arctic Circle, I saw that you're, you had a Jeep piece where you went to the Arctic Circle. I want to take, <laughs> I want to take my 911 there. So I want to drive my 911 um, to Tuktoyaktuk, which is the northernmost city in North America yeah. on the Arctic Circle. Convince me to do it. Do it. Um, it's a lot easier than you think. You know, the, the, the roads stopped being paved past the something, something parallel. I can't remember. But, you know, basically, if you, if you plan and, you know, the Internet makes research easier than it's ever been. We went up. So to back up, just to give people who don't, uh, who don't have any perspective or, or don't, don't, didn't read that issue of road and track, which is entirely possible. Um, we took, well, a year and a half ago, I took a four-door Jeep Wrangler, the new JL, to... Uh, the furthest, nor the further, the northernmost point in Alaska, which happens to be right on the Arctic Circle. Um, it's about a 400, 500 mile dirt road drive from Fairbanks. Fairbanks is smack in the middle of the state. And basically, the thing with Alaska is anytime you go in the middle of nowhere, there's, it's not really like that's a misnomer, right? The cities are all in the middle of nowhere. And the moment you leave a city, it is instant wilderness. So, like, we left, left Fairbanks, and then 20 miles later, we're on a dirt road. And then we're on a gravel road, and then we're on an even worse gravel road, and then 400 miles later on that gravel road. And then you're like, is this three... a road? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We'd pass through three, like something like four different climate zones, um, three different types of landscapes, of so mountains, tundra, uh, grassland, high forest, and something else. And we're, you know, staring at the Arctic Ocean. I mean, and it goes back to what we were talking about with cars, right? You know? That's possible. You could do that. We did it on a Jeep, but you could do that drive at a Corolla if you didn't care about beating up the Corolla. Should you take a 911 to the Arctic Circle? Hell yes. It's it's easy. 
Google it and get in the car and go. And oh, I've got the road to, already know. planned. It's already planned. This, this was more of a hypothetical question. It's it's going to happen. It's oh, going to happen. I mean, the, bring 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 bear repellent and or a shotgun. I mean, at one point we literally we were about a hundred miles south of the ocean, and, I, and we're just cruising through tundra. And tundra is like actual living tundra is is deeply fragile, right? You know, you the road is the, the road up there is laid up on a gravel bed on top of the tundra. But the moment you step off the gravel, you're on the living Arctic tundra, which is basically just this kind of like three, four inch deep swampy grassland that did, you know, I mean, a shoe on it can kill it, right? You But you put a foot into it and you immediately sink up to your calf because it's full of, you know, basically there's a bed of permafrost and there's water onto it. And then all that stuff freezes in the winter. But in the summer, it's essentially just living green, bubbling pools of frogs and fish and all this other stuff. But we're driving through this stuff with the door. And we took the doors off the Jeep at Fairbanks because we're real stupid because it was the middle of summer. And I thought, it's not going to be that bad. And then about 200 miles up, it drops down to like 25, 30 degrees, which doesn't sound that bad until you realize that it's 60 miles an hour in a Jeep with the doors off. Yeah, on the gravel feels road. like temperature get, is pretty Yeah, <laughs> right, right. There's like a 60 mile an hour wind chill and there's gravel getting kicked in your face and, you know, everything is miserable. But at one point, I look over outside of the, I look over outside of the Jeep through the open door that is there on the right side. And I look over and there's this grizzly bear about a car and a half width off into the tundra just running alongside us looking at us like we're, you know, lunch. And yeah. then I set up. I mean, <laughs> if you go, bring bring bear repellent and a bunch of, you know, spare tire fix and tools. Oh, yeah. But you should totally do it. It's yeah. amazing. I, I can't wait. It's we're, we're, I'm working on it. We're going to try and make it happen. So you in a recent article, I really like this one. It was, it was relatively short, but it was about you had a four-cylinder Camaro that you were driving mm. out yeah. in the desert. And I'm just going to read a quote from it, and then I'm going to ask you a question afterward. Um, you said... As the car crested the ridge, it occurred to me that one day, when there are no more V8s and the robots have taken over and we all live in self-contained life support pods where no one gets hurt and every meal is a heaping tube of precisely engineered protein paste, we will remember when it was easy to have a good time being stupid and free. (laughs) I mean, obviously, there's a little hyperbole there, but when you were in that Camaro, what is it about that drive that made you feel that way? What did that Camaro teach you? Oh God! So that was a that was a column in uh, column in, in the magazine a couple issues ago, which inevitably gets published online. But you know that was a four cylinder Camaro with base suspension and base interior. It was essentially rental car spec with car magazine trim on it, right? Which means that they put all the things on it that no one will ever buy. But underneath it, that no one will ever buy, and the journalists like. Right. And underneath it, it's basically just the car that they're going to sell to Hertz. Um. It was, it's funny, right? In the middle of the California desert, when you stare at the horizon and you're pinned in a car that makes, you know, not a lot of power and doesn't really do a lot well because it's a base Camaro, it's, your head just goes places, man. I mean, it's, there is something, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's something about being in the middle of nowhere and being in a simple car that turns your brain off. And the stuff that goes through it is unique for everybody. You know, for me, it was, it was a little bit of, of why am I here and a little bit of where do I want to be six months from now and a little bit of what did I have for breakfast and why does my toe itch? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's just a great place that, that your head goes when you, you don't think about the rest of life. Yeah, but, when I get out and I'm on those roads and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, you can, you can 
literally stop the car in the middle of the road and get out. Oh, yeah. And totally. I love that I am the only person there experiencing that instance of time. I'm the only one that can see any of it. It's all mine. And I think that yeah. at that point, it doesn't matter what car you took there. It doesn't matter how much horsepower it has or what suspension it has or if it's got big brakes or anything like that. Because at that point, you're just it's a tool for exploring and it doesn't need to be some wild performance car to get that done. Of course. I mean, that's the thing, right? It all comes down to it's never about the car. And one of the things you learn real early on uh, when you write about this stuff and live with it and pay attention to it is that you know, at the end of the day, horsepower is just horsepower and weight is just weight and tire is just tire and steering feel and all the things that are great and terrible about a car. It doesn't really matter so long as the, you're in the thing and you're using it. We meet so many people in this gig who have garages full of amazing stuff and McLarens and Bugattis and, you know, 1950s Ferraris and $50 million GTOs and things like that. And at the end of the day, most of those cars don't get driven because they are insanely valuable and you use them up and they become even more expensive to own. You know, would I rather have a McLaren that I don't drive or a Miata that I do? I mean, the answer is, probably going to be Miata. Right. You know, it, it only matters in as much, a car only matters in as much as what you do with it and where it takes you. I always you know, find it ironic that when people think of, if you think of the 50s Ferrari or a McLaren or whatever it is, and we talk about those cars being valuable, right? We, I always implore people to go, why is that car valuable? Why is it desirable? And they'll go, oh, because it did this and it did that and it did this. And it's always because it did something. It accomplished something. It moved somebody right. or or it operated. It did its job as the tool that it is with the engine and the wheels. It did that very well or it did it romantically or whatever. And that's why it's valuable. And now you're holding on to it for who? For what? Why? <laughs> who, who are we? Who are we curating this for? For the people that in 100 years don't care about cars anymore? What are we doing? So, you know, my dad ran a restoration shop when I was a little, very uh, small, small, um, small little joint in Kentucky that mainly dealt with British shit, uh, excuse me, British stuff. Um, <laughs> but he had a phrase, his line was always, who are you saving it for? Right. You know, not, not to be the, the, the logical extension of that thought is you bring a Picasso into your house and then you smear mayonnaise all over it because my Picasso, I can do whatever I want. But the other side of that is, you know, if, if you have a machine that is best appreciated and used and its engineers and designers intended it to be used, you are essentially giving them a giant middle finger if you buy it and park it and pretend it's a, some kind of shrine. I mean, I always say it's, it's a machine, not a Picasso. I always say that on the right. podcast. It's a machine, not a Picasso. You got to use the thing, not look at it. And there are pieces of car. There are cars that are pieces of art, right? Like the Count Trossi Mercedes-Benz, the Prop Lauren owns is one of one and a, it, it should sit in MoMA, right? You know, right. They, hell, they put a Chisitalia in MoMA at one point. There are things like that that are so impossibly rare and well-crafted that they are probably better served not being on the road. But, you know, you look at, like, you look at pictures of, like, so those 50s Ferraris, for example, right? You know, a good pontoon Fender 250TR, Testarossa, is double-digit millions healthily and has been for a long time. And when those cars were new, you know, the Ferrari mechanics ashed cigarettes against them. They leaned up against them. They hammered the fenders out. You know, stuff got broken and thrown away, and it was disposable. Enzo was famously less than, you know, hyperbolically less than romantic about the stuff his company built because they were means to an end. And, you know, 
on the one hand, you shouldn't trash the thing just because you own it and there's nobody coming after you. You know, if that was the case, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have the Louvre or, you know, the great pyramids or any of the other stuff that survived through America, through um, world history. But on the other, like it's a, it, it, anything you don't use just withers. And if you're happy with it withering in your care, great. But you know, I'd rather hear a 250 TR at full screen as a way of, you know, illustrating the story that it represents or see a 917 K ripping across Laguna Seca, than have it sitting in a box somewhere. So some, some wealthy guy can just poke at it and pretend that he's got taste. Yeah, it, it ends up being, it's almost like a physical representation of the poster you had on your wall as a kid. Instead of right, having the poster, right. you just have the car. It's the same exact thing. Really. Uh, if you, if, if you life, boil it down, that's what it is. Yeah. The goal of life is not to build a museum to your own taste. Right? You know, nobody cares if you have something sitting in your house as a, a representative of, you know, the kind of stuff you like. I don't know. It's, and I understand that there are people who, who are into it, but just never, never push my buttons. So speaking on values a little bit, this wasn't on my list of things to talk about, but how does something like a, a Volkswagen Rabbit GTI going for $33,000 on Bring a Trailer and all the values of all that stuff that used to be, you know, you and I would probably go and be, oh man, I'm going to go buy another. I've owned 30 of those Rabbits like for 500 bucks <laughs> and I've experienced them all. There's a lot of other cars that I've experienced that were cheap and the Mercedes stuff is going crazy. Do you think it's ruining anything with the accessibility to this kind of stuff for people or is it a good thing? Oh, on a On a certain level, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? You know, there are, look at, look at old, like Mark one GTIs or old Hondas. They are great cars that were designed to be used every day. And the process, they are so good at their job that generally by the time they've reached the end of their useful life with family one, family two, family three, or enthusiast owner one, two, and three, they are so worn out and so expensive to rebuild relatively to their, to their value that they're not worth keeping, which is why, you know, <laughs> early 80s Civic SIs and Rabbit GTIs and, and in a lot of ways, you know, clean 1.6 Miatas, you know, all the stuff that was built as a commodity, as an appliance, sort of, uh, why a lot of those things aren't aren't around anymore, you know? And if if 30 grand is what it takes for somebody to buy a clean Mark 1 GTI because there just aren't any left and that's the one that's left and that's what the guy wants for it, you know, who am I to argue with the free market? Right. The other side of that is, you know, I, I had four E30 M3s when they were $10,000 cars. I owned one, sold it, owned another, sold it, owned another, sold it, yada, yada, yada. And they are now at the point where, you know, I, I, I street parked mine. I worked on them in gutters in college. I like took them on long road trips. I ended up, you know, camping out of them. Like there are, there is something great that comes from using a vehicle when it is just a vehicle, when it's a tool. And now, like, uh, even the worst E30 M3 in the world is worth a multiple of what I paid for my first one. And people don't use them like that anymore. Is that is that wrong? No. But by the same token, if the yes. joy... In I would thing, say yes. I would say yes. It's absolutely well, wrong. You, well, I mean, what are you going to do, though? I mean, it's, you can't say that... You can't shut down the free market. And you can't say that, you know, this car isn't worth this much. So you can't sell it for this much. I mean, right. do I wish that, you know... I mean, Bowman and I were talking about, Zach Bowman and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago because he he got almost given a relatively low mile 1.6 and a Miata. It was like, had like 50,000 miles on it, needed a motor. And he went looking for a 1.6 for it, not a 1.8, because he likes the 1.6. 1.6 is a great motor for that car. 
zingy. It's what it was originally built with, yada, yada, yada. And he was just immensely disturbed because the last time he had priced Miata motors was several years ago. And people were throwing away one sixes and they were, you know, you get a long block for two, three, four hundred dollars. And now that's nine hundred a grand, twelve hundred grand, twelve hundred bucks. And he was we were talking about the notion that all of this stuff eventually becomes uncommon. And does it completely and totally suck that there's gonna we're gonna you know, we will see a forty thousand dollar NA Miata and we will eventually probably see somebody paying fifty grand for a Mark One GTI? Yes. Do I hate the people who do it? Yes. <laughs> On the other hand, what are you going to do? And ultimately, it means that somebody values it and is preserving it. So, I mean, it's it's like most of this stuff. There are no are no black and white answers, right? So, in another article, uh, you drove down a closed road called Mary Hill um, with a very mm-hmm. diverse diverse group of cars, and you said, "quote If you had never driven a car, you might think all vehicles and roads were just variations on a theme. But so much of the appeal with this stuff is in the difference." The freedom to have sex deep sports cars or a focused little city bomber or a fire breathing truck, then rip it up to Alaska or Florida or the backside of nowhere for relatively little cost. Anytime that freedom is impinged upon, its appeal withers a bit, even if the cuts are small and largely rational. Speed limits are inarguably safer than no speed limits. Snow globes like Mary Hill are better than no roads at all. Curbing vehicle deaths by trading humans for lines of code. How do you say no to not killing people? Now, I, basically, I want you to answer your own question. Is how do you say no to not killing people because the the uh, the freedom and the emotion of driving a car is important. And if we're all going to die someday, how important is it to make sure that we reserve the color of life, even if it can kill you? I mean, look, I am right there with you. I completely agree with you. I, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that you know, everything we've been talking about, like, yada, yada, yada. a life unexamined is not worth living. A life not off the couch is not, not a life. All of this stuff. This is all very, very real. But the other side of that coin is, so to back up, um, one of the things that got me thinking about that story, to, to make that story happen, there's a, we basically went to a closed, a, a closed road that's used for hill climbs in Washington State. And it's a, an ancient piece of experimental pavement that was used to basically test out, um, w- when paved roads were new, it was built to test out ideas on camber and banking and turn radius and things like that. And it's always been a closed road. It goes from nowhere to nowhere else in the hills of southeastern Washington. And you can rent it. Clark Holtz rented for hill climbs. Uh, magazines rent for photo shoots. Half of the car commercials you've seen in a rolling hill with grassland have probably been shot at Mary Hill. So we went out there um, as a way to kind of look into the future, this notion that some people think that the automobile is going to turn into a version of the horse where everybody goes to a closed park somewhere. It's only available for wealthy people. And on Sundays, you go out and you, you know, do dressage or you drive your Miata in a circle or, you know, expand the metaphor, right? So we got up there. And one of the things that made me start thinking about that story and planning it was several years ago, I had an interview and got a chance to talk pretty extensively with a guy who runs Google's self-driving car division. And one of the things that he said, he's a really interesting guy. He used to head up Hyundai North America. He uh, came out of what was it, MIT, I think, and the MIT program um, that analyzed the Toyota production method and how the industry turned over. His whole concern is always what's coming next. But one of the things that he said was, you know, we're not doing this, meaning they're not building an automated car. They're not trying to solve the problem of automated driving. We're not doing this for any complex reason. It's not to make money, not to uh, sell ads on it. 
The whole reason is because we want to stop people from dying. And I said, okay, unpack that. And he said, you know, the, the number of, it turns out that the number of vehicle deaths in America is equivalent to something like, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it exactly because I don't remember the details, but it's equivalent to something like a 737 going down every hour, right? And Or every 10 minutes or every 20 minutes or whatever the hell it is. And he, he, he said that at the core, they were just, they found that untenable and unacceptable. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier. You know, if you, if you don't look at people dying and think, we should stop this if we can, you're probably not human. But by the same token, nobody wants to live in a padded cell. I don't know if you reconcile that question. And that's the reason why I asked that question in print. You know, it's, it comes down to these, like the nature of humanity is coming up against a problem that we don't know how to solve and acknowledging in the end that we might not be able to solve it, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. That was always trying to get at. I, I completely agree. So when most of your writing alludes to the importance of driving and what it means, but you never really say exactly why driving is important. So, you know, who you write for is you write for me, you write for Jake, my co-host who's here listening. I, I didn't want to interrupt, but I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sam. And, but there's the vast majority of people don't care, right? Or they think they don't care. Maybe they like getting in their car and driving around in the country every once in a while and seeing the pretty things or whatever, but they don't really care. How do you explain how we feel and what's important to us and how it matters to them. How do you get that point across to people that just generally don't care? Well, I mean, there, there are two schools of thought on that, right? One is that you can't and there's only so much you can do and there's no sense talking outside the tent because if somebody doesn't like, look at me, like, so I don't like to give you by way of example, we were cooking stuff last night. My wife asked about vegetables and she named a couple of things and I recoiled when she mentioned rutabagas. And it's like, I don't like rutabagas. Nothing about, nothing you can do, no amount of preparation, no amount of bacon tossed on top of it is going to make me like rutabagas. Um, I think in that the would end, be worth a people, shot, though. The bacon on the rutabaga. I mean, bacon's a maple glazed rutabaga. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But in the end, some people just don't like cars and don't like driving, right? You know, one of the guys I know who works, um, you know, I can name him, but he works he, he works in the company that owns Road and Track, and I know him by extension, just basically said, we were talking about cars, and he's not really into cars, and he owns a Camry, and he said, you know, I just, I'm sorry, man, I just don't like, I, we were trying to, Bowman and I were actually sitting with him at dinner trying to convince him to ride motorcycles, and he said, you know, at the end of the day, I think I just don't like a visceral experience, and he was, <laughs> Bowman looked at me, and I looked at Bowman, and we both kind of just it was like, okay, that answers the question. You are not, not one of the people who digs the stuff we dig. And it's, there are just some people that won't like driving. And it seems um, like a lot of those people are very, very loud. The people that don't <laughs> like driving, they're very, very loud. And it's, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, I mean, people that are very loud making a lot of noise are the ones writing totally. rules. And that, that's well, uh, look at, look at our current political climate, right? You know, the biggest problem, no matter how you're bent politically, isn't that, you know, things are either going your way or not going your way, depending on how you look at it. it it's that everybody yells at each other. Right. You know, mm -hmm. things do not happen when we yell. Everybody yelling just makes people angry. Right. You know, so the, the nature, to, to get back to your question, you know, the nature of that, you're not going to, you know, we meet people and I've, I've worked with people and interviewed people and built stories with people that did not in, initially like driving or motorcycles or racing or cars in general. And then they turn. There's something that trips it for them because... You know, at the core, there is universal stuff here, motion and freedom and, you know, tapping into the things that make us human. 
But, you know, if, if you can't switch them, you can't switch them. And more important, you know, the, the job is something it's a cross, you know, on the one hand, part of it is explaining and illustrating the bit of our life. That is the automobile. The people already in the tent, you, me, guys, I know in the SCCA, like people who work for the magazine, even. And the other part of it is acknowledging that part of loving this stuff is admitting that you're in, uh, maybe not a shrinking minority and maybe not even a minority, but you're in a select group. And, you know, for the same reason that like, you know, I'm never going to live with a house cat because I don't enjoy cats. I'm a dog person. (laughs) Sure. You know, that there are, there are lines. That's what makes us human. That's what separates us. And, you know, realizing that there is universal stuff that ties it all together is it's the equivalent of not yelling in a political argument. Right. Right. So much of your writing, if you look at the headlines and scroll back through the file cabinet of your body of work, talks about the road, analog cars, and driving itself. How do you see the future of enthusiasts or meritous driving? I don't Man, these are deep questions. Well, That's I, I, want, I want to know the real stuff. <laughs> no softballs. Yeah, there's no softballs What do you think about the fate of humanity? Well, <laughs> I think it's going to be good as long as we have coffee. Um, it's, hey, how do I see the future of driving? You know, it's... I mean, there are a bunch of ways to unpack that. The, the simple answer is probably that on a long enough time, time frame, it goes away, you know, because on a long enough time frame, everything goes away. Humanity goes away if you set your clocks right. I mean, you know, there is only one answer to getting people efficiently around the planet, and it's probably the only one best answer, at least. And it's probably not going to be, you know, individually guided steel and glass, plastic missiles of, you know, of hydrocarbons or electrons or whatever the hell ends up being the better answer a hundred years from now. That said, will we see it? I don't think so. I mean, there's everybody you talk to in the business, everybody whose job it is, think tanks or car makers to forecast out how far this goes is, you know, it's the good stuff is going to get better. The bad stuff is going to get worse. There's no solution for traffic, but by the same token, there is also no better solution for a winding road or an empty piece of farmland that needs a pickup truck or a racetrack in the middle of nowhere than the automobile. And, you know, it's, there's a reason that we have stuck with it for as long as we have and evolved it. And it's because at the moment it solves a problem. And I think you'll probably understand this when I say it is the the car is a tool. There's nothing that allows you to explore and see (laughs) as much all at once as rapidly as a car, mm-hmm. there's nothing that will yeah. take you as many places that you want to go almost anywhere at any time in the entire world. If you want right. than a car, nothing right. else does that as well. Nothing. And, so, and in history, nothing short of the horse has, 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 has reimagined our capacity for individual freedom. Right. You know, and that's the future of that is, is like trying to figure out the future of the human race. I mean, I, there, there are a lot of, a lot of sound ideas on where it's going and some of them will probably happen. I I put as much weight on it as that too. I, I, there is a lot of weight to it. The bigger question I think is how, how you, how you try and work for something better within the realm of what we've got. If you work in the industry and how you focus on the best way to be an enthusiast and enjoy what you have for you. Right. You know, for me, if I lived in Kansas and, you know, made $5 a year, it would probably be, owning the world's worst Miata. You know, if I had, if I was an oligarch and had 20 jets, it would probably be collecting a bunch of pre-war ground three cars. I mean, and using it, like whatever it is, as long as you figure out a way to put it in your life, you know, that's, 
they can't take that away from you. And, and no amount of change in the system will will completely remove that. Yeah, I think At you're going to see a lot of rebellious behavior in the future is, is, how, <laughs> is how I see it. You know, we had a, we had a professor on who's going to be on later in later in the month. And he was just talking about how, you know, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do that. And you're not going to be able to do this. And I go want to bet <laughs> i just i just said i want to bet because i'll be the guy that's you know i'll i'll try it you aren't gonna let me drive in the city watch me <laughs> and you know you don't want to be the guy you don't want to be the dude in 1899 who's looking around saying well the horse is obviously the better answer right or the person who like you know you don't want to be john henry railing against the locomotive you right. want to give that that's last right. valiant stand and you don't want to stick your head in the sand but by the same token like the the big like the big it's like autonomy right the big secret with autonomy is that all the people working on it know it's further out than the people who are trying to market it right you know it, what we think is coming is probably coming but it is also probably far far further in the future than anybody's noticed because it's like you know humanity has this we have these tendencies as people to just we're reductive, right? We want to take complex problems and look at them and, and simplify them down to the simplest way to the simplest answer and the simplest way to state them. And unfortunately, you know, the, the problem of getting people across the planet is a complex one. And the problem of, oh, I, I enjoy this thing that burns, you know, this non, non-renewable petrochemical thing we dug up out of the ground. And I don't want it to go away. But at the same time, I also don't want to destroy the environment. At the same time, I also need to get my kids to work. And at the same time, like, you know, automated car is fine, except in three feet of snow. And all, you know, those, those are complex questions. Right. Pretending that there's any one answer, even if you're an academic, is is where you get to trouble. So you've, uh, last question. You've had a lot of crazy sure. experiences, obviously, that we've talked about. What's missing? What do you, you know, mm-hmm. after you've done all this, where, what do you still feel is missing in your career and the things you want to do? What's left? You know, it's... Um, God, that, again, another another question that could be answered with an entire bottle of rye. Um, it's it, it's everything. I I'm I, I got into this because I'm curious and I like learning and because I like talking to people and figuring out how and why we tick through the lens of the stuff I enjoy. You know, and in this case, it happens to be cars and automotive culture and you know personal freedoms. Getting getting out of the house and ending up three days later in a canyon in, in Arizona. Um, I. What's missing is they're always they're always unanswered questions. You know, there are always people figuring out ways to do something in the space or with a car or with culture or you know just answering simple problems that you can learn more about. And you know, with me, it's not. I know guys who get into it. A friend of mine got into it and into this business, did it for twenty years, and then got out, retired, and went to work for a major car company as a PR guy. I asked him how he could leave media. I kind of knew that because you know, the answer to how you can leave media is well, I'd like to get paid. Right. Um, but I asked him how, how we could leave that and car culture and all that stuff behind. I said, well, I kind of drove everything I wanted to drive. And oh. I looked at him and I couldn't process it. didn't click. Right. I couldn't right. process it because that's just not, that's just not why I'm here. The answer to your question is, is, is infinite. I mean, I, what, what else do you want to learn about? Right. <laughs> Who says, well, I've got five things left and then I'm pretty much going to pack up shop in the next 60 years. Like it's, right. it's like, a long road. Like you said, you, like I say, if, if, if you're not exploring, you know, you mm-hmm. might as well quit. You know, and it's, that could exactly. be, like I said, it could be cars, it could be food, it could be travel, it could be anything, but you got to keep going. So I'm going to end the, in the interview on a, on a quote that you have. And it says, no one ever started a magazine about how much fun it is to use a toaster. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, uh, that caps it off pretty well. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and spending time with us today. And, and I hope you enjoyed some of the questions I had for you. No, thanks, guys. This was fun. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah, take care of yourself. Sam. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. That's some good stories. It is. Huge thank you to Sam Smith. At least he didn't need to convince me to go up to the Arctic Circle. I was already <laughs> going to do that. It was more of a hypothetical question. All right, guys, before we go, make sure you head on over to patreon.com slash overcrest. Support the show. We would really appreciate it. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends. Share your friends and share with us Wait, what you think. <laughs> share your friends. <laughs> is that what I said? <laughs> How about share it with your friends? I would like you to know that the majority of our audience is male. So uh, you can, whatever you want, Jake. This is a, No, I'm just a friendly person. Maybe I just want to have more friends, Chris. Yeah, I'm the one that was offering hugs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, guys. We will see you on Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.